Am I going to sit here and say that the line doesn't fatigue you? Absolutely not. Flowing while moving is a huge taxing undertaking, but I think that the reward is worth it on the back end. And in a lot of settings, we're really only needing to flow and move for about 15 to 20 feet at a maximum. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. Enchanted Sky Studios in Prescott, Arizona. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code 3 features interviews with leading members of the fire service, discussing firefighting strategies, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. You are listening to the show for and about firefighters. Let's get started. Today's topic is flowing water while advancing the line. Some departments always do it, some don't. There's pretty good evidence that flowing while advancing is safer than dragging an uncharged line into a burning structure. Studies support the idea that water sprayed on the ceiling reduces superheated gases and cools it down. You can even change the fire's flow path with a well-placed hand line. Here to explain that and more is Jonathan Brumley. He's a firefighter with the Denver, Colorado Fire Department, having just left Houston, Texas. Since 2009, he's worked as both a paid and volunteer firefighter. He recently presented at Firehouse World. He's an instructor, and he's behind the blog, The Firefight. And Jonathan Brumley joins me now. Welcome to Code 3. Hi there, Scott. It's uh, an honor to, to be with you on the podcast today. Well, thank you. So let's talk for a minute about the studies behind this concept. What did the UL study say? So there's actually a lot that the UL study said. In fact, the third part alone was over 700 pages. So there's a lot of content that can be drawn out of it. And I think in, and a lot of people in the fire service will shy away from something like that just because of the size of a document. But there's so much good stuff in it that I'd still recommend everyone take the time to read through it on their own. But basically, this was a three-part study on fire attack. And there were three topics in particular that they really dug into deeply. The first one was water mapping, which is basically how we should be applying water on fire. Air entrainment was the second study. And really, that just comes down to the nozzles that we're selecting and how those nozzles, their pressures, and the patterns that you use with those nozzles affect the fire environment. And then finally, it was all wrapped up with a look at how interior versus exterior fire attack will impact fire conditions, basically. And typically, we're, we're talking about single-family dwellings with these, but they can be applied on structures other than that. But the studies dove into single-family dwelling for the most part. And I think there's several things that we could pull out of it. The very first thing that really stuck out to me is that they're saying that fast application of water to the seat of the fire is key here. 
it's the surest way that we're going to positively impact fire conditions. And when we're positively impacting fire conditions, we're also increasing the, the chance for victim survival as well. So that was really the culmination of all of this is that fast water application is what really matters. Another thing that they talked about is that really water can't bounce off of things. It's going to ride walls. It's going to ride ceilings. And so we need to put ourselves in a better position so that we can provide mass surface cooling because it, basically we can't tell water where to go. It's going to go where it wants to after it contacts a surface. So we need to be putting ourselves in positions where, where we're applying water in the most efficient manner. Another thing they talked about a lot is that flowing hand lines have the ability to affect flow path. They talked initially about not being able to push fire, and then there was a little bit of a, uh, a supplement to the study that came out a little bit later saying, you know what, we really can affect the movement of fire gases in, in a structure. And I know that that's a big topic in the fire service right now, but basically when we're flowing water, we have the ability to push those products of combustion away from the surfaces and away from the areas that we're trying to protect. And so what we really want to do is we want to put our nozzle in a position where we're protecting the rest of the house from the fire and, and moving those products of combustion away from the fire attack. And by doing so, we also noted in the, in the study that while we're flowing water during advancing, there's a continuous cooling effect. And that cooling effect is happening not only where the nozzle is, but it's happening in front of the nozzle and it's happening behind the nozzle, which in a lot of cases is what's most important is we're, we're getting that nozzle deeper and deeper into the structure nearer to the, the point of origin and thereby we're protecting the rest of that structure whenever we're flowing these hand lines. Probably the biggest thing that stuck out to me is how quickly temperatures rebound whenever we shut down the line. So they're saying that in a matter of seconds, the temperatures are going to go right back to where they were if we shut down our nozzles. So we have to be flowing these and flowing them on a continuous basis until we reach the seat of the fire. Now, how does this play out in real life? For example, if we're talking about a rooming contents fire, do you open the bale when you make entry and then keep flowing as you head toward the room? Or is this only for really major fires where there may be more than one room involved? I think that it applies pretty universally on, on most of the structure fires that we're going to go into. It's not necessarily a tactic that has to be employed, but we're seeing in this study that when we are flowing water, and that's the key, is that that nozzle is open, and that's when we're making our impacts. So obviously, we're doing nothing to the fire whenever our bale is shut down. So are we opening it right when we open that front door? Maybe, maybe not. We're going to let the fire conditions tell us whether or not that's something that has to occur. If we open the front door and we have temperatures of like 90 degrees or 100 degrees where we just have some light smoke or something, no, we're not going to be flowing water until we get a little bit closer to the seat of the fire. But if we've got those extremely high ceiling temperatures, we should be opening up the line far before we reach the seat of the fire when we're encountering ceiling temperatures you know, in the, the several hundreds. That way we can begin impacting the, the structure itself and we start moving those hot fire gases away from the occupants in the property that we're trying to protect. So there is plenty of evidence that this tactic has major benefit. Why doesn't everyone use it? Simply put, I think it's because it's not widely taught. And 
I've been a firefighter now in three different states. And in each of the academies that I've been through, it wasn't something that was a part of the academy curriculum. So what I think it comes down to at the root of it, I think it stems from several technologies that have come out in the fire service in the past couple of decades. And I think that that has now impacted how we conduct live fire training as well. The first technology is I think that we have better PPE. I think that's very well known at this point. So it means that we can go deeper into the fire without the need for water application because we're not feeling the sting that our predecessors did where they're not wearing hoods and they're not wearing the SCBAs. They had to flow water to survive in those situations. When we got that better PPE, we no longer had to have a flowing hand line to advance into these structures. So what you saw was guys walking straight up to the seat of the fire before they ever opened up the line. And I think that that kind of transitioned into how fire attack is being taught in our academies. The other thing that was introduced to the fire service as well was high pressure nozzles. And what that did for the fire service was it, yes, it gave us the ability to change the pattern on our lines, but it also gave us more nozzle reaction that we had to encounter as a firefighter. And more nozzle reaction now means that we can't keep our bales open nearly as long. And so it became more of a static fire attack with a high pressure nozzle system. When we started putting ourselves in positions where we had to stay still when we kept the bale open, we kind of lost that ability to move our attack lines at the same time. Going back to live fire training, a lot of our new firefighters are being trained inside of these burn buildings where we're trying to just get some repetitions through. And so recruits are being told not to flow copious amounts of water because they have to relight these fires right away. That then translates over into the fire ground where firefighters are scared to keep the bale open because all of their training prior to the actual event has told them, oh, I shouldn't be flowing a lot of water inside of these structures. And I think that that's one thing that the American Fire Service can improve on is teaching our firefighters that water isn't the enemy. Fire is the enemy and water is our, our ability to combat that enemy. All right. And all that makes good sense. But how realistic is it to do this with the two and a half at 300 gallons per minute pressure? Isn't that going to kill you if you try to move it and keep the bale open? It is possible. I'm going to say that right now. A dialed in engine company is going to be able to do this all day. With, with what? With two firefighters or what? You know, the typical imaging company in the American Fire Service is only going to have about two firefighters on the hand line whenever they first deploy it. Now, later into the event, we would love to have more, and there are departments out there that are blessed to have more staffing. The beautiful thing about training is that we can build that camaraderie between the two firefighters on there, and they will be able to move this hand line. Are they going to be able to keep the bail open for extended periods of time? Probably not. What I like to, to look at, though, is when you're flowing 300 gallons per minute, the nozzle reaction on an inch and 3 16th tip is about 110 pounds. If they're using an inch and a quarter tip flowing 300 gallons per minute, that nozzle reaction actually drops to about 100 pounds of force against the firefighter. When I was working at my last apartment, that inch and three quarter line flowing 200 gallons per minute actually had the exact same nozzle reaction uh, right around that 100 pounds of, of force mark because they were using high pressure nozzles. So if we're choosing a low pressure nozzle system and a complementary hose line, we're actually setting ourselves up for success and we're able to flow more gallons per minute. 
am I going to sit here and say that the line doesn't fatigue you? Absolutely not. Flowing while moving is a huge taxing undertaking, but I think that the reward is worth it on the back end. And in a lot of settings, we're really only needing to flow and move for about 15 to 20 feet at a maximum. We should be able to advance the line up to the point where we're reaching those high ceiling temperatures that we talked about previously. And then once we encounter those situations where we just have to drive back that high heat and take back that space, that's where we open up the line and keep it open for about that 15 to 20 feet. So maybe we reach the end of the hallway, maybe we enter a new part of the structure and we seal off that doorway and take over that space. So I'm not asking people to flow for hundreds of feet unassisted by any means. And I'd kind of like to equate it to the single firefighter who's tasked with grabbing a 28 foot ladder, taking it to the Charlie side, throwing it by themselves, and then having to go up and vent with their crew. It kind of limits what, it reaches the limits of what a single person is capable of handling in the short term, but it benefits the operation so much that we should be training to get ourselves to that point. So that 300 gallons per minute on a two and a half is absolutely reaching the threshold of, of what a, a typical engine company is capable of doing. However, I think that that should be a goal for our engine companies ultimately. Based on your research, are you familiar with a best case combination of hose size, nozzle type, and water pressure? There's not a, a one-size-fits-all. I'll, I'll say that right away. So I certainly have my preferences. I think there's something pretty amazing about putting a 7 eighths tip on the end of an inch and three-quarter hose line with a quality hose and moving it through a structure. It just becomes a swift, uh, nimble fire attack system. Um, and then, obviously, there's some, some two-and-a-half counterparts as well that I prefer. But with that being said, best has to be determined department by department because no department is going to operate similarly. They're not going to have the same response times. There's just so many factors that play into it. So it all starts for each department at determining what their ultimate target flow is. And what I mean by that is they have to come up with a starting point for what they want their nozzles to flow. Um, so just kind of is a, a rough baseline. The minimum for an inch and three quarters should be about 150 gallons per minute. And then the maximum for a two and a half should be 300 gallons per minute. Now there are kind of some anomalies out there where, you know, maybe you have a pretty amazing engine company that can exceed those thresholds. However, I think that that's a, a good realistic um, starting point for the fire service. So each department needs to determine what they actually want to flow out of their, their hand lines. And they have to be realistic for a single firefighter to handle. And what I mean by that is, is typically a single firefighter is going to be tasked with opening up that nozzle and flowing that line by themselves. Now, when it comes to moving the line, obviously we're going to have more people introduced to that system, but even for a two person uh, attack company, and I'm considering that as being a nozzle firefighter and an officer because a driver would stay back outside. Um, the officer may not even touch that hose line for a while because they've got some some different things to do inside as well. So that single, single firefighter has to be able to handle that. And so that's a, a good point to, to hit home is that we got to be realistic with what we expect our firefighters to handle. Once we've got that target flow determined, 
then we can go and decide what nozzles will then flow that target flow. So I believe that nozzle pressure should be low pressure and high volume. So we shouldn't be putting 100 PSI nozzles in the hands of our firefighters and expect them to, to perform at the, their best abilities. I'm not going to go into an argument necessarily of smoothbore versus combination fog. The UL studies went over it that a smoothbore stream and a straight stream impact the fire environment pretty similarly. But what I will argue for is that we should be having our tip pressure somewhere in the 75 to, to 50 PSI range. And anything beyond that seems pretty unnecessary. And then once we've decided what nozzle will be working for our department, then we should be pairing our nozzles with hose lines um, that complement that nozzle. It should be tested as the system and it should be uh, purchased as a complete package. We can't expect to go out and just buy a nozzle and expect it to, to fix all of our problems. We have to look at it as a total package and make sure that we're we're putting our, our packages through realistic trainings rather than just looking in a catalog and saying this one looks good, we should be putting it in the hands of our firefighters and making sure that what we're trying to achieve is is actually possible when we're matching our, our hose packages and our nozzle packages. All right. Kurt Isaacson likes to say that a lot of structure fires can be put out with an engine's onboard tank, but this technique seems like it might make that unworkable. Do we need a hydrant to make this kind of attack? A lot of my experience with my past fire department was just making tank water attacks. The first in engine wasn't forward laying. They weren't attacking the fire off of a hydrant until, until later into the fire. So a lot of our attacks were made directly off of tank water. And I have to agree with, with Kurt Isaacson in that we can affect the fire greatly with 500 gallons of water or 750 gallons of water. We shouldn't be worrying quite as much as we do about running out of water simply because it doesn't take that much water to put out these structure fires whenever we're applying water effectively. Our fire flow formulas will show that we really don't need that much in order to impact the fire environment. And ultimately, we do want to establish a, a water supply. So I won't discount that fact but it's something that can certainly be done later into the fire attack. This tactic requires some physical strength, more than what you'd need if you're going to pull the line when it's dry. What do firefighters individually need to do in terms of hose handling technique? What firefighters really need is they need solid technique from a static position prior to ever trying to move with a hand line. So we need to cover things ahead of time, like, how much line needs to be out in front of the firefighter and what position the nozzle bale is supposed to be in. We need to make sure that they have a solid foundation built that capitalizes on the body's biggest muscles from a static position prior to ever moving. If we introduce movement into fire attack too early in the process, we're just going to have a very uncoordinated firefighter who ultimately is going to end up shutting down the line anyways. So we want to take the time to make sure that they have solid technique built way before we ask them to start flowing these down hallways as well. These are skills that can, can be taught in a couple of days. But the thing is, is that proficiency and hopefully mastery will come much later down the road. So we shouldn't be discouraged if we 
spend a little bit of time with a firefighter, tell them how to do it, and then see that they're, they're struggling at the very beginning. And it takes time and it takes a lot of repetition. I can't emphasize that enough. It's a lot of repetition that it takes in order to build some of these skills. For me personally, I won't say that a person has to travel to see a particular instructor in order to do these things well, but there are some world-class guys out there teaching these techniques right now. And I'd highly recommend trainings outside of one's own department if they don't feel like they're getting what they need inside their own department. I personally wouldn't be where I am today without individuals who have mentored me both formally and informally. Guys like Brian Brush and the Fire by Trade instructors, Ray McCormick out of FDNY, you mentioned Kurt Isaacson, Adam Mayers, Gary Lane, and I can't talk about this topic without mentioning Aaron Fields, Jim Squatiri, Nate Jamison, and the rest of the Nozzle Forward cadre. The Nozzle Forward class was career-changing for me, and I don't think that there's a better way to learn how to learn these techniques of flowing and moving inside of a structure than spending a couple of days with uh, that group of guys. I think they deserve so much credit for what they've taught the modern fire service. Follow after mentors. Ask questions outside of your department if you feel like the department isn't setting you up for success in some of these ways. And and seek out the the guys who have been doing this for a long time, and hopefully we can get everybody on board with this type of fire attack. All right, Jonathan Brumley, thanks for being with me on Code 3 today. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be here on Code 3. And we put some more information about the hows and whys of keeping the bale open and the water flowing as you advance the line on our website at code3podcast.com slash push. Check it out. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. This time we talked about the benefits of advancing a charged line in a structure fire. I'd like to hear what you do. Is this how you operate or not, and why? Might your department consider a change if you don't? Just email me, scott at code3podcast.com, or leave a voicemail at 562-337-9902. I will read and play back your comments on a future show. Thank you for listening today. I'll be back next time with more. I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To contact us, get more information on today's topic, or subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.